Hey, what's up everyone? Welcome. Welcome current listeners, new listeners. This is episode 16 of WFS, The Will Ford Show. I apologize. I was hoping to get back on a good schedule for you guys around the Thursday or Friday area. After I had done two Sundays in a row, and now today is Monday. I am way behind. Consistency is key. i got to be more consistent. I can't use what I have going on as an excuse. I've got to be more consistent and get, the, get these shows together for you guys. So, my apologies. That just means you guys will get two this week. Today and hopefully Thursday. I, I plan to do it Thursday or Saturday. Friday would not be a good day because I have a track invitational. And that is a late night one. So I would not be able to do it Friday. But Thursday or Saturday would be really good days to tune in and see if I've dropped an episode. So I know consistency is key. I apologize for getting these out so late, but without further ado, let's jump into episode 16. So I want to start off in the NBA, and Kevin Durant's been getting all these technicals this year. He's been ejected, I I don't know how many times, uh, too many, I guess. I, I think it's four or five times he's been ejected this year, and he said that his increase in the amount of technicals he's had is due to an increased love, passion, and and desire to win another championship. I couldn't disagree more. This feels more like a sense of entitlement to me. Because he's a top three player in the world, maybe second best player in the world behind LeBron, on the best team in the Golden State Warriors. And Kevin Durant feels like the whistle should favor him more because he's on the best team, he's the best player. And he feels this sense of entitlement that, you know, since we're the best, since we're the champs, we should get every call. I don't think Durant knows how to handle to be a champion. I don't think he knows how to handle it. We all know LeBron sometimes acts this way a little bit. A little bit. But LeBron's not getting technicals over it. So he might complain about a call. Everybody complains about calls. When I played, I I complained about calls more than I should have. Everybody complains. But you just can't keep going on about it. How many technicals does Durant have? I... 16, probably. Well, no, I don't think it's that much because I think once you hit 13, you get suspended for a game, and I don't think he's been suspended. But gosh, it's way too many. Far too many. For a player of his caliber. He might be the the most talented, worst-behaved champion I've ever seen in my entire life. Like, honestly, worse than, than, I don't know if he he might be worse than Draymond Green. In terms of the referees, he's worse. Now, Draymond used to have a problem of physically kicking people in the groin to try and hurt them. I think he's far past that, and I think he understands that now. But Durant, it just feels like a sense of entitlement. I think he feels like he should be getting the calls because he is the reigning, defending, undisputed champion right now. And that's not right. That's not how you be a champion. A champion continues to fight and earns that respect from the referees. And I'm not saying the referee should ever give any player favoritism over another just because of if they're a champion or if they're a superstar or whatever. They should be calling it fair. But Durant just just needs to grow up. Curry doesn't act this way. Clay Thompson doesn't act this way. Draymond doesn't 
exactly act this way. Draymond's actually held Durant back several times. Draymond's actually been trying to defuse the situations that Durant has caused. And that shows an increased maturity in Draymond Green and a far decreased, far lower maturity level in Kevin Durant. Durant was never like this in OKC, but he was never in a a dominant winning situation. He was in a winning winning situation in OKC, but he never really took it to that next level. I mean, it was in the finals once, but they got manhandled by LeBron and the Heat. He doesn't know how to handle being a champion yet. But I don't believe for a second that it is an increased love, passion, and desire to win. Because your desire, passion, and love for the game should always be sky high. Otherwise, why are you playing it? Why are you playing it? I would think all three of those things would be really high if you're playing in the NBA. I have a desire to win in every sport I compete in. But getting into fights with refs over calls, especially this late in the season too, it, it just doesn't matter. Like You guys are the best team. You're second in the West. You have home court advantage throughout the playoffs unless you play the Houston Rockets, which is very possible. What's the big deal? What are you fighting over? Grow up and move on. Just move on. It, it, it's not that big of a deal. It's really not. I don't believe for a second that it has anything to do with love, passion, or desire to win a championship. Because those should already be at its peak. Regardless, every year, Kobe's like that. MJ was like that. LeBron's like that. Steph Curry's like that. That's how it should be. Shouldn't be getting into fights with refs on a consistent basis like this. And speaking of LeBron James, LeBron broke Michael Jordan's record for most consecutive 10-plus point games. He now holds the record at 867 consecutive games of 10 or more points. Really, I think this is an overrated stat. Because if you think about this, MJ ret retired twice. Had he not done that, MJ's streak could probably be around 1,000, 1,100, 1,200 games. Well, honestly, it could be. This this is an extremely overrated stat, and I, I, I just don't... It doesn't get... LeBron any closer to surpassing Michael Jordan all time. 10 plus point games, consecutive streak, really? You really think that's going to get you any closer? The greatest of all time label, in my eyes, is determined by success and championships. Michael Jordan's 100% in the finals. LeBron is 3 for 8, 37%. Granted, I know he went against the Warriors with KD, but that was one time. Explain the other four losses to me. You lost to a very good shooting Warriors team the first time. You've lost to the Spurs twice. You lost to the Mavs after being up 2-0, I think, I think they were, 2-1. Come on. And and people want to make the argument that MJ has always had more help because he had Scotty, he had like Tony Kukoc, Dennis Rodman. But let's let's not forget that those guys those guys came to the Bulls with MJ. MJ was already there. MJ didn't recruit anybody. He didn't care. And MJ certainly wasn't going to go play with anyone else. LeBron built the first super team out in Miami. 
he left Cleveland, joined Dwayne Wade and Chris Bosh in their primes in Miami. That That's not the right way to win. I mean, obviously in this league now, it's the right way to win. But back then, that was just so frowned upon. I don't like that kind of that kind of situation. LeBron couldn't win in Cleveland. He just couldn't do it. He had to go form his own team to do it. MJ didn't have to do that. LeBron can have all the achievements and accolades he wants. But talk to me when he has six rings and has a better percentage than Michael Jordan in the finals. Which, I mean, that's not possible. But just talk to me when he has six rings at least. And I don't think that's going to happen now, especially with the Warriors, how they are. They're built to last for at least a few more years, depending on contracts. Houston's on the rise. And LeBron could leave here in a few years. Or even after this year. MJ's not even close. Or, I'm sorry, LeBron's not even close to surpassing MJ. He couldn't win on his own. He'd made the first super team. Dwayne Wade, I think, is far, I think, is a better all time player than Scotty. They're not the same player, but just all time. Chris Bosh, I think, is a better player than Dennis Rodman was. That team is better equipped than Jordan's team was. And I get that it's a different era. Teams were different. And the, and the strength of each conference was different. But still... LeBron has far more value, I feel like. He has far more value because if you take LeBron away from from the Cavs, they're probably a not even 30-win team. And if you take it's there it's been proven that if you take MJ away when he retired the first time, they still won 50 something games with Scotty. So obviously LeBron's value is much higher than than MJ's, but MJ is still the greatest of all time because of his overall achievement. Or not achievement, but success, I suppose. Six rings in six tries. Three rings in eight tries. People say you just you can't look at just championships. You kind of have to, it's a very important piece to determining who's the greatest of all time. It's a very, very, very important piece. Extremely important. So I think this, this 10 plus point per game streak stat is extremely overrated. All right, moving on. We mentioned the Houston Rockets. Their head coach, Mike D'Antoni, feels that being rested but playing poorly is not a good formula as the playoffs are approaching. He wants to keep momentum. In my opinion, rest is far more valuable than momentum. And that's definitely true this season with just how many injuries we've had. It's, it's not hard to find a rhythm in basketball. You can get that back easily. Not being sharp is something you can fix easily. Injury, on the other hand, injuries are something you can't have. You just can't have that going into, a play, into the playoffs. They already have the number one seed locked up. They have that locked up for the entire playoffs. Home court advantage. And I'm I'm totally in favor of rest 
specifically with the Rockets because they're a veteran team. Veteran teams need rest if they've already secured a good standing in the in the seedings for the playoffs. Chris Paul, Trevor Ariza, Eric Gordon, Ryan Anderson, they need rest. Especially CP3. I mean, he's had some knee problems over the past few years. Guys like that need rest because they're older guys. If you're young, if you're a young team like the 76ers, okay, play. You don't need to rest. You guys are young. You got fresh legs. You can play. And by the way, they just lost Joel Embiid with an orbital orbital bone fracture. So that's really bad for them right now, but they're they're going to make the playoffs, it looks like. So obviously that's bad right now for the sh for the short term in terms of seeding, but once they get him back, they they could they're, they're not a threat to win a championship. But they can they can make a little noise. Veteran teams need rest. Young teams need momentum. I think that's the difference. It's a very it's a very gray area. It's 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 difficult to analyze and manage. I, I get it. But young teams need the momentum because they don't have as much playoff experience. Older teams, veteran teams. They need rest because they have more miles on their bodies than the younger guys. It's a, it's a tough thing to analyze and manage. It is. But rest is far more important with this Rockets team than being sharp heading into the playoffs. All right, let's segue now over to the NFL. And I want to do a little something. We don't really have much NFL stuff to talk about other than draft and free agency, which, I mean, it's all big stuff, but that's all we ever talk about. So I wanted to do, wanted to do a little something. I wanted to take 10 rookies from this past season that I think are primed to break out in their sophomore campaign. And one that I think could make a massive jump is Mitch Trubisky, quarterback from the Bears. Let's be honest, this team last year didn't scare a lot of other teams, this offense in particular. Their passing, passing game was horrible. And basically, you could just play man coverage and defenses could keep it very simple. And and Trubisky only passed for more than 200 yards in just three of his 12 starts. He did show really good flashes of some athleticism, some arm talent, some mobility. But with Matt Nagy coming in as head coach and installing a system that can cater to Trubisky's talent a lot more, I think Trubisky is going to start trending upwards here very quickly. I mean, they added... Allen Robinson in free agency. He's coming off an ACL injury, but man, he is a really good receiver. The best one in free agency. They picked up Trey Burton, a solid tight end. You can match him up in multiple spots. And they picked up a speedy slot receiver in Taylor Gabriel from Atlanta. Gabriel is a really good change of direction guy. He has got great skills to break down the defenses in open field. So it's a these are huge upgrades for Trubisky compared to what he had to work with last season. And Nagy's offense is it's kind of like a modern twist on the West Coast passing game, and it really could could jumpstart Trubisky's development. I mean, a perfect example is Jared Goff and Sean McVay last year. That's the blueprint the Bears have to follow. I think he is going to make a massive jump within the next year or two. Another guy that I think can make a big jump is Joe Mixon, running back from the Cincinnati Bengals. 
He's got great power, speed, and he can. He's a uh, actually a pretty solid receiving back. And he had, he rushed for over 600 yards and had almost 300 yards receiving while sharing touches with Jeremy Hill and Giovanni Bernard. Jeremy Hill left and went to the Patriots. They just traded for an offensive tackle on Cordy Glenn from Buffalo. So I, Mixon, I think, is in line to see a, a, a very big workload increase behind a, a much better offensive line. And they could draft another offensive lineman in the first round this year. So Joe Mixon is another guy I think could be trending upwards. He's a guy that can handle a lot of volume when it comes to touches. And he, he rips off a lot of chunk gains on the ground. He's a good receiving target on screens, underneath throws. I think he can be a far more consistent back next season. Alright. Takarish McKinley, defensive end from the Atlanta Falcons. This guy's energy level is just out of this world. He is a he, he's a guy that plays really hard coming off the edge. He's relentless. He he produced six sacks for the Atlanta Falcons this year. But he should be should see a far more increased role this year because Adrian Claiborne left in free agency. So his game should significantly elevate with more technique at the point of attack. I mean, with he's got a much better opportunity now. And for the majority of edge rushers in the league, their their developmental jump comes in their second or third season. He's got tremendous upside, and his energy, I think, can really help him succeed moving forward. And he's got he's got great speed, too. I think McKinley's in a spot to boost his stock as one of the top young edge defenders in the NFL. I really do. Corey Davis... The receiver from the Tennessee Titans, he was a bit of a disappointment this year. He played 11 games, but he was he was a disappointment because he had a lot of injury struggles. He only caught 34 passes, almost 400 yards, and he didn't score a touchdown once. I mean, he improved as the year went on, and he's he's. He's got a really good frame, solid frame, six foot three, two hundred and ten pounds, tremendous body control, big play talent. I think he he can produce more consistent numbers next year with their new offensive coordinator, Matt LaFleur. Davis can run the deep end cuts, like the drag routes. He can win the one-on-one -on -one routes. And he has great footwork, too, to set up defensive backs. And plus, their offensive system is going to create more opportunities with him. Matt LaFleur's system is going to create more, more uh, opportunities and put Marietta in a position to attack throwing windows. Corey Davis, I think, is going to be Mariota's top red zone target next year. And then this this is a big one. I think this is probably almost as big, if not possibly bigger, than Mitch Trubisky. That's Pat Mahomes with the Kansas City Chiefs. The Chiefs don't have Alex Smith anymore, and that's huge because that means Pat Mahomes is getting his first opportunity to start. He is walking into a system with all of this talent around him. They just signed Sammy Watkins. He has a speedy, speedy receiver in Tyreek Hill. I mean, you just throw that thing as far as you can and he'll go get it. Travis Kelsey, in my opinion, is... I think he's the best tight end in football just because of 
how durable he is. Gronk is injured all the time. They're virtually the same player in terms of physicality. I like Travis Kelsey a lot. He's got a lot of weapons around him, and Mahomes has got a cannon for an arm. He's like Brett Favre 2.0. And he's got a tremendous knack for, for playing when the offense isn't on schedule. He's got great mobility, and he can improvise. And when the Chiefs drafted Mahomes last year, I think it, it was the beginning of the end for Alex Smith in Kansas City. I think we all knew that. We all knew that eventually Alex Smith was going to go. We may not have known he was going to be gone after one year, but Mahomes is going to get a big opportunity to perform in a tough AFC West division. That division is going to be really tough this year. Next is a receiver from the Detroit Lions. A lot of you may not know who he is, but Kenny Galladay, receiver, Detroit Lions. Week one, he had two touchdowns, and I actually picked him up in my fantasy league after week one because he just he looks so good. He's he's his frame is insane. He's got he's six four, runs a four five in the forty. He can high point the ball really well. Galladay could be a solid number three option for, for Matt Stafford this year behind Golden Tate and Marvin Jones. Kevin King, corner for the Green Bay Packers. Now, Kevin King was hurt a solid bit last year, but they just got rid of Demarius Randall. This kid could really make an impact. He's 6'3", 200 pounds. That's really solid for a corner. Usually they're around 6 foot, 5'11", 180, 190. But he is a, he's a pretty good guy when it comes to man coverage, and he's very physical, and he can, he can challenge routes right up top. And he's, he's a solid tackler, too. And he's a tremendous ball tracker, so I think he's going to have a tremendous impact next year for the Green Bay Packers. Their secondary has, has been pretty bad, and I think he's going to be a step up from Demarius Randall. Tariq Cohen, I think, is another big guy for the Chicago Bears. He actually had a really good rookie season playing behind Jordan Howard. He had... About 750 yards from scrimmage. And he's a really good pass catcher, and he's a solid punt returner, too. He's sort of like Tyreek Hill, but as a, as a running back, really. But with Matt Nagy's system, uh, Tariq Cohen could be just a huge wild card in the offensive game plan. He's a chess piece that just can expose defenses left and right. Nagy can use him on jet sweeps, misdirection plays, slip screens. He can move him out of the formation as a receiver. He's, he's 5'6", 181 pounds. That's a really small guy. But he can put defenders on skates in the open field. So look for that next year. Jonathan Allen, defensive end for the Washington Redskins. He didn't really play a lot last year. He only played five games and only had ten tackles and a sack. He only played five games due to a Linz Frank injury. But it, this guy's got good technique and he's pretty athletic too. He's, he's really good at the point of attack. He's very disciplined, and he is a pretty good anchor in the run game, too. And honestly, this guy in mock drafts last year was going as high as the top five, and he fell to 17 just because of his injury troubles. 
But I think heading into his second season, he's going to be a key piece on the Washington Redskins defensive front. And lastly, I think this is 10. Yes. George Kittle, the tight end for the San Francisco 49ers. This guy was a fifth-round pick uh, in last year's draft. But he had 515 yards receiving on 43 catches and two touchdowns. That's that's pretty solid for a tight end. Tight ends don't normally get that many receiving yards. You see Max around 750 yards. But I this could be a he could have a huge improvement in year two. It, he fits very well in Kyle Shanahan's offense. He's gonna have a full season with Jimmy Garoppolo, not just five games. He's very, very fast for a tight end too. It, he's got four or five speed. And he can play slot also. He can work the middle of the field, catch the ball off of play action. He's kind of he's he's kind of like an H back in a way. He moves all around, can block really well in the run game, and he can slip out of the backfield on a little tight end slip screen and give Garoppolo high percentage targets underneath. So the 49ers, honestly, dark horse to win the Super Bowl. I've said that before, but man. That division is going to be very competitive this year with the Rams and the 49ers. I don't think the Seahawks are going to be in that much contention, but I really do like the Rams and the 49ers in the NFC West. But those are my 10 rookies that are primed to break out in year two, in my opinion. Next, we're going to move on to the Le'Veon Bell contract situation. Uh, his contract negotiations with the Steelers have halted. And I, I think a lot of us assumed this would happen. I don't think a deal is ever going to happen with them. Uh, but he wants Antonio Brown kind of money. Antonio's making $17, 18000000 million as the highest paid receiver in football. First of all, I want to know what happened to the $14, 15000000 million he was wanting originally. Why does that change to 17 million? Like I thought 14 to 15 was really really high, but this is just absurd. 17 million. Like I know Le'Veon is really good, but I don't care how good anyone else, anyone is. You're not making that much money if you're not a quarterback. I understand how talented he is. I know what value he brings and what qualities he brings with receiving the ball. He's probably the best receiving football or receiving running back in football. You can line him up anywhere, slot outside, and his style of play is very unique. He's incredibly patient. He just kind of walks behind his offensive line and then just finds a little crease and squeezes through it. And no running back to me is worth more than $13 million, 14. And that's even a stretch. I, 12 million is probably the max value I would put on a running back. Like Ezekiel Elliott is not worth $17 million. He, he's not worth $13, $14 million. Todd Gurley's not worth that much. David Johnson's not worth that much. Alvin Kamara is not worth that much. No skill player other than a quarterback is worth north of $20 million. Honestly, the Steelers should just rescind their franchise tag they placed on him and just, just rescind it, let him hit the open market, and draft a running back. Draft Darius Geis. He, he should be there late in the first round. It's far cheaper. You're far more flexible financially. And you're getting a solid, solid power back, too. He's, he's a power back, but with some speed. Just rescind that tag. You don't need to be paying this guy that much money. Let someone else do it. Let someone else be held hostage financially with this kind of money. It's, it's very much like the Odell Beckham situation in New York. Right now, Odell wants $20 million. That's three more than A.B. Like, absolutely not. A.B.'s making 17, which is a lot for a receiver. That's the highest paid in football. 
But Antonio Brown has earned that money. He is incredible. Odell's coming off of injury. If I'm the Giants, I'm looking to trade him. Several teams are interested. The Browns, the Rams, and I know a lot of other teams are interested. Probably every team in the league is interested. His value is super. He's got a lot of value. The only problem is, is I don't think teams are going to trade for him just because they're going to have to pay him if they trade for him. It's the only thing holding him back from being traded. Otherwise, you'd have teams on the phone all the time, 24-7, trying to figure out what it would take to get him. The Giants want two first-rounders for him. I don't think you're going to get two firsts. You'll get one first and maybe a second. I would do a first and a third. Now, if I'm the Browns, they've got three seconds. I would give away a second and the fourth. That's what I would do. But teams don't want to be held hostage financially by trading for him, so I don't think he's going to get traded. But this could be potentially a great situation for the Giants if they manage to trade him. Because right now, they're in a, they're in a rebuild. You tra if you trade Odell to, let's say, the Cleveland Browns, you trade him there, you can get the fourth pick and we'll say a third round pick. And then if you trade back from two, because remember, they have number two pick also. You trade back from two, you could easily get another four picks from a team like the Bills or, or the Cardinals. So right there, to kick off your rebuild, you've got six draft picks. And number four, you can take a quarterback. And then you have five other picks to help build your roster. That's a tremendous way to jumpstart a rebuild. And it makes a lot of sense for the Browns, too, if they traded for Odell. They've got, they've got the assets. They've got a ton of picks. And they have a lot of cap money, too. They've got over $60 million in cap space. So it wouldn't hurt too much to, to pay him $20 million. But if you've got the assets and you've got that kind of money, you've got to do it. Imagine Sam Darnold or... Whoever the, the Browns drafted number one with Jarvis Landry, Corey Coleman, Josh Gordon, David Njoku, and Odell Beckham Jr. to throw to. That's an that's what a way to ease into to the NFL, really. I like that deal for both sides. It kickstarts your your rebuild. And then the Browns would probably be in control of the NFC North. I am being dead serious about that too. They would control the NFC North. Even if, even if you have Tyrod Taylor playing quarterback and you don't start Darnold or Allen or Rosen, you're still controlling that division. Tyrod is an extremely, extremely accurate quarterback. He has no idea what a turnover is. He has no idea what a turnover is. This would be great for both sides. Another guy that it could potentially be on the trade block is Rob Gronkowski. He is almost certain he will be back next year playing football with the New England Patriots, but I am not so sure that that will happen. Let's not forget what New England does, what they're all about. They're always rotating players in and out, whether, whether it's no names or stars. Nobody gets a free pass in New England, no matter how talented you are, no matter how much of a superstar you are, no matter how accomplished. Bill Belichick has proven that the system is more important than its stars. And let's not forget, too, that New England has won a Super Bowl without Rob Gronkowski. And they just lost one without him. Gronk is not that valuable. Obviously, he's a great piece to have. He's a great target. Top one or two tight end in football. But he's always hurt. You can't rely on him. And plus, 
he's had some on-the-field antics, too. Belichick, I think, has wanted to get rid of him for a while. I know the Rams are interested. Give Belichick that number 23 pick, and I think... I think Belichick would take that in a heartbeat. If you give him that. That would be an incredible, incredible acquisition for the Rams, too. You'd get him for a couple years. And you pair that with Goff and Gurley. I mean, and Robert Woods is no scrub at receiver. That's a that's really solid. And the, the Rams have young, talented tight ends, but they don't have a go-to player on offense receiving the ball. So Gronk would be that guy for Jared Goff. And I think they would control that division with Rob Gronkowski because you just can't stop him when he's healthy. I would do that if I was the Rams. And the Rams, like I said, they're interested in, in Gronk and Odell Beckham. They're really trying hard to get better. They've, they've traded for the best corner in football, arguably the best corner in football, and Marcus Peters. They traded for Aqib Tlaib, who's a top 5'10 corner in the league. He's older, but he's still a tremendous one-year rental for only a fifth-round pick. Goff, Gurley, McVay, add either uh, Gronk or Odell. With that defense, that secondary, gosh, that would be some team. That would be some team, and that would be my new Super Bowl favorite if they landed either Odell or Gronk. That would just be incredible. But with that, I want to move on to my NFL Mock Draft 5.0. I will not do the entire first round this time. That probably was a little boring because, you know, who wants to listen to all 32 teams? You probably just want to hear your team. But I'm only going to do the top 10 picks this time again. And I will also do one additional pick because... It is very related to something that's going to occur in the top 10 in my belief. So number one, the Browns. Mel Kuyper came out with his mock draft not too long ago. And he had Josh Allen on number one to the Browns. And he said that all of the picks in his mock draft, he would not have made them his mock draft if he didn't believe there was some kind of level of interest in these players for each team. So it looks like the Browns are leaning Josh Allen. I really like Josh Allen. I think really any quarterback, any of these quarterbacks would be great. I think I really like Josh Allen though right now. I'm kind of high on high and low on a lot of quarterbacks. Like I was high on Darnold for a while. Then I was high on Baker Mayfield. And then I was high on Lamar Jackson for a little bit. And now I'm, I'm really high on Josh Allen. So I have them taking Allen at number one. Number two is where I think it gets a little dicey. Last week, I had the Cardinals trading up from 15 to get Rosen at two. But now I think the Bills are, tr are going to trade to number two. They've been trying really, really hard to get into the top five recently. So I think they're going to trade with the Giants up to two, and they're going to take Sam Darnold. The Giants have also expressed interest in Darnold if he's available, but I think they'll trade back again because they think they're going to try to restart their 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 team. They're going to jumpstart the rebuild. So the Bills get Sam Darnold. The Jets still take Rosen at three. The Browns at four will get their home run hitter in Saquon Barkley. Number five. The Denver Broncos, they're going to get their guy to replace Aqib Tlaib in Denzel Ward, the best cover corner in the draft. Potential Marshawn Lattimore impact. Number six, the Colts need offensive line help for Andrew Luck. He needs protection. Quentin Nelson, offensive guard Notre Dame, perfect fit. And it gives Andrew Luck a little bit of help. And something notable about the Colts, they turned down multiple offers for Jacoby Brissett. 
And the reason they did so was so they had him in case Andrew Luck wasn't quite ready to start the season. So that that kind of tells me a lot, to be honest with you, because if they were confident in, that Andrew Luck was going to come back, they probably would have gotten rid of him. But it must be a very, very, very serious injury because they were talking about like mid-season last year he was going to come back. And they're like, oh, a couple more weeks, a couple more weeks, a couple more weeks, and then pretty soon they're out of playoff contention, and then they're like, ah, next season. But I think a key piece to helping Andrew Luck keep healthy is Quentin Nelson. Number seven, the Tampa Bay Bucks. They need an edge rusher. Bradley Chubb, NC State. Said this last week, the key to having a better secondary is having a good pass rush. Bradley Chubb will help out a lot. The Bears need a linebacker at number eight. Roquan Smith is their guy. 49ers at nine, they need secondary help. They could go corner here. They need someone off on the other side of Richard Sherman, but I really like Derwin James. I, his impact, I think, is going to be incredible. It's almost going to be like Jalen Ramsey, I think. So Derwin James, 49ers. Number 10, the Raiders also need a linebacker. Previously, I've had them taking Roquan all the way, but now that the Bears have him, Tremaine Edmonds is the next best guy, Virginia Tech. And then number 12, this is the Giants now that the Bills have traded to number 2. The Giants are going to get their quarterback of the future in Baker Mayfield. Not Lamar Jackson. I think it's going to be Baker Mayfield. And a lot of this could change, to be honest with you. The number 4, could, number four pick could potentially be different if... The Giants trade Odell to the Browns. So the number four pick could be the Giants, and they could trade back again from there, or they could take potentially, well, if they have the fourth pick, they're not going to get Rosen, Darnold, or Allen. So they could take Barkley at four, potentially, get their running back. They're not going to take Baker that high. It really depends on how all of this shakes out. But let's assume the Giants keep OBJ and they trade back in two with the Bills. The Giants are going to get Baker Mayfield at number 12. All right, so ESPN came out with their top 20 most dominant athletes in the last 20 years. I don't want to do 20. You don't have time for 20. I don't have time for 20. Nor am I interested in doing 20. I did. I know I did a full entire first round mock draft, but I kind of got bored. I'm sure you got bored listening and probably skipped it. So I'm just going to do the top 10. And really the top five is really what I'm, what I'm interested in. Number one, Floyd Mayweather. The guy's 50-0 in his boxing career. That's utter dominance, to say the least. To never lose a match and to actually fight against a guy who is a UFC fighter, who is relentless in the octagon, that's tough. Number two is the most dominant Olympian we have ever seen in Michael Phelps. The guy's got over like over 20-something medals. His dominance in swimming has been incredible. Not to mention all the world championships I'm sure he's got. Number three is another Olympian who is almost as dominant. Usain Bolt is probably the most dominant sprinter slash track athlete slash athlete that's not a sprinter or not a a swimmer ever. The guy's the fastest guy we've ever seen in the 100 meter dash and the 200 meter dash and on the 4x1 and 4x200 meter relays. Number four, now number four and five, I can see where you could flip these two 
but this is just a personal preference for me. Number four, I have Roger Federer, and number five, I have Serena Williams. Roger Federer became the world number one for the first time in 2004, I believe. He is world number one in 2018 at age 36 years old. And the greatest thing about Federer is not that he's dominant as an athlete, but he's also like one of the nicest guys on the planet too. Like you cannot hate this man. People try to find a way to hate him and you just can't hate him. And the reason I have Federer in front of Serena Williams is Serena has won more major titles, more Grand Slam titles. But Roger had far better competition when playing for majors. He's played against Rafael Nadal, Novak Djokovic, Andy Murray, Stan Wawrinka. And there's a crop of young talent up coming up right now, like Grigor Dimitrov, Alexander Zverev, Marin Cilic is really good. Juan Martin Del Potro is very good. The, the overall talent in men's tennis and, and overall competition is just far greater than what it is in women's tennis. Before Serena had her baby, she was the most dominant player in women's tennis. No one could beat her. Really, the only competition for, for Serena was her sister Venus and like Maria Sharapova. And now you have the likes of Simona Halep coming out and Angelique Kerber and Caroline Wozniacki. But Serena never has really gotten to play against them. It's really been just Sharapova and her sister Venus. She hasn't had to go up against a ton. Women's tennis, no offense, is just generally weaker in competition than men's tennis. And I say no offense because I know any women listening to this may get offended by that, but I mean, it's it's the truth. Serena hasn't had that great a competition. Roger Federer had to go up against a lot more. But I can definitely understand flipping the two. I, can, I definitely understand it, but that's just my personal opinion. Number six, Tiger Woods. Now, Tiger Woods hasn't been that dominant in the past, you know, five or six, seven years, but his first 10 to 12 years on tour, that man was unstoppable. Probably the most dominant 12-year stretch I've ever, or that the world has ever seen. From the 1997 Masters to like the 2000, to, to like the 2008 U.S. Open, the guy has been incredible. And he is making a pretty solid comeback right now and is planning to play in the Masters. And he's looking really, really good too. Number seven, Tom Brady. The man has been to eight Super Bowls. Eight of them. He's won five. Elway made it to a lot of Super Bowls and was embarrassed in a lot of Super Bowls. But Brady won five of eight. That's pretty dominant. And the NFL is a league that punishes teams for being good. You have cap restrictions. You get the lowest draft picks for being good and winning championships. So Brady having to deal with that Getting to eight Super Bowls in the AFC, that's generally weaker than the NFC, but still. You still got to go through the Steelers. The Jaguars are now formidable. The Ravens have been a tough test in the past. The Broncos. Phillip Rivers is always tough with the Chargers. It can be tough, and it has been tough for Tom Brady over the years. Number eight. I've got LeBron James. The guy is probably the most talented player in the history of the NBA. 
the only knock against him is just the championships, three of eight. Like I said earlier, three of eight, 37%, 38%. The only way I, that's the only reason why really I have him down as far as eight. It's just because of the winning aspect, but in terms of just overall sheer dominance and level of play consistently, he is unlike anything we've really ever seen. Number nine, I have Lionel Messi, soccer player for Barcelona. In soccer, really, it's all about one thing. It's about goals, and this guy has a butt-ton of goals. It's incredible. It really is. He's like Wayne Gretzky. Like as, as great as Wayne Gretzky was in the NHL, he didn't have as near as many goals as Lionel, Lionel Messi does. The only thing, he hasn't won a World Cup for Barcelona, but, I mean, gosh, the guy's incredible. And then number 10... Number 10 is a tough one. You can you can really say a number of different guys. Really, I only cared about my top five or six. Uh, but number 10, I put Barry Bonds there. Barry Bonds. Uh, it, it, one word comes to mind when you hear Barry Bonds, and that's steroids. But regardless of that, that guy just hit it out of the park relentlessly and there was always a buzz in the ballpark whenever Barry Bonds was at the plate so it he was just a, extremely dominant and like I said I, I, I'm I'm not doing top 20 this is my top 10 most dominant athletes in the last 20 years Okay, let's move on to March Madness. I know that the game, the Villanova-Michigan game, is tonight. I am not currently watching it. So I am recording this before it's going to already be happening by the time. It's going to be already over by the time this uploads. But I'm just going to preview it. You'll hear my thoughts on the game. what happens when you leave an episode so late. Uh, but we'll start first with the NCAA Women's National Championship. Notre Dame defeated Mississippi State on a last-second game-winning three. Really, it was an incredible sequence of events. Mississippi State had a steal with about 10 seconds left. And then a Mississippi State player got fouled dribbling down the court, and they did not call it. Notre Dame got the ball back. And call timeout. Three seconds left. Notre Dame hits an incredible three to win it. And the same girl that hit the three, she's got a name I I I just can't pronounce. So I I am not even going to try. So shout out to this girl. Uh, she beat UConn. On a game winner as well in the Final Four. And really, I think beating UConn on a game winner is far more impressive than winning a national championship against a different team on a game winner, just because UConn has been so dominant. And the UConn hasn't won the the tourney in the past two years. South Carolina won it last year, and now it's Notre Dame this year. UConn has been so dominant, and it's kind of surprising they haven't won it in the last few years. But it's nice to see some change for once, a little bit of parity. But congrats to Notre Dame on defeating Mississippi State on an incredible, incredible shot. And then the game tonight, Villanova versus Michigan. Villanova is heavily favored. And... Anytime a team is heavily favored in a national championship, that smells like upset special. That smells like an upset special. I don't think Villanova will shoot like they did against Kansas in the Final Four. 18 three-pointers, 12 of them in the first half. 
Villanova head coach Jay Wright actually apologized to the Kansas head coach because they were making everything. He just said it was just like, I'm sorry. It's just one of those nights where we're hitting everything. And the reason why I think this can, this can be upset special is because Michigan is a tremendous team defensively. They really close out on the shooter really well. Villanova is very experienced. They have really good shooting. And when the shots aren't falling, they have a, they have a f- couple playmakers who can create shots for others to get them going offensively. So I think if the score is in the 80s, if it's a high-scoring affair, my money's on Villanova. But if it's in the 60s, maybe low 70s, I I give Michigan a great chance to pull off the upset. But with that being said, I'm still going to pick Villanova in this game. I'll say 82-72. Only way I see Villanova losing is if it's held to a lower scoring game. But next week, well, this week, we will recap that game. And hopefully I can get to you guys earlier next week. Um, that's it for me this week, guys. We've had a pretty good show. I've missed a lot, so actually I've had a lot to talk about. But that's it for me this week. Make sure you follow the show on Twitter at the Will Ford Show. Rate and review the show on iTunes and SoundCloud. Share this podcast with your friends, your family, whoever. Just share it. We'll see you guys either Thursday or Saturday. It's WFS. Everything you got, red light, green light, everybody take a shot, red light.